Well, we can uh, turn back to the chapter we read there, Nehemiah chapter 2. As we noticed uh, in the previous, <clears throat> regarding the previous chapter, uh, Nehemiah had been informed by some of his friends about the state of things in Jerusalem. And the state of things in Jerusalem was not great. And therefore, he had prayed about it. And not only did he pray, but he fasted and so on. And he prayed for a period of about three to four months. And he realizes that now has come the time for something to be done. He didn't know how you would do it, but he knew it had to be done. There were uh, two people, two persons who could help him. And he didn't know how either of them would do it. One was God. I mean, none of us, when we pray to God, know how he's going to answer them. We may have our thoughts about it, and we may think this would be a good way for God to do something, but we don't know. The other person who could do something about it was the king. And Nehemiah had no idea how he would do it. The initiative would not lie with Nehemiah. He's not allowed to say anything until the king speaks. The king might choose not to speak. Or the king might ask him about some question that's got nothing to do with Jerusalem. He's a cupbearer. He's got a kind of symbolic role of tasting the wine just in case envy tried to poison the, uh, the king. But he was much more than a mere cupbearer. He's also a counsellor. And since the king he was approaching is in charge of the vast Persian Empire, the king could have asked him about anything from anywhere within his vast domains. But Nehemiah knows, well, something's going to happen. This man in front of me is going to have to do it. As I say, he had no idea how God would lead the king to do something. Anyway, what causes the king to ask the relevant question? Well, we, we know who it was, Nehemiah's sad face. I suppose there were 
lots of places in the Persian Empire where people could be sat. But there was one place where it was not allowed to be sat. And that one location was the presence of the king. I mean, it would be highly insulting to the king for anyone to be sad in his presence. It would be an implication to the king that you didn't regard him as being able to solve all the issues. And as we can see, Nehemiah, there he is, and the king spots right away that Nehemiah is sad. And the king's reason for asking the question, it could have been concern for Nehemiah, or it could have been an angry question. And why are you sad? There's nothing wrong. Why are you sad? Or it could be, how dare you be sad in my presence? But anyway, the king asks him the question, and Nehemiah, he can no longer be silent. So as we think about this incident, I'd just like us to think about three points. First one is that fear can be a good sign. And the second one is arrow prayers. And the third one is hindrances. <clears throat> Why was Nehemiah sad? Well, he was sad because of the state of God's kingdom. It went deep to his heart. Rather bizarrely, you might think, <clears throat> I didn't really intend to say anything about that today. But God has ways of reminding people. I just took up a book of daily readings this morning by John Owen. And his reading happened to be on sadness of heart at the mess of God's kingdom. How do we assess God's kingdom today? How big is the mess? What do we see about it? But more to the point, what do we feel about it? I mean, Owen says something in the reading that, that those who don't care about its demise will not taste in its success. Don't know what you think of that. But Nehemiah. Owen wasn't speaking about Nehemiah. But it's certainly true about Nehemiah, isn't it? He'd have had no success 
if he hadn't felt it in his heart. Felt it to such an extent that he couldn't hide it. If somebody, if my neighbors, would they pick up that I am distressed at the state of Christ's cause? Would your neighbors, your workmates, even your family? Nehemiah, it showed on his face. And he knew it was a dangerous place to reveal that in the presence of the king who made everybody happy. Or at least made them pretend to be happy. But such was Nehemiah's burden. He couldn't hide it. I suspect it's one of the tests of real spirituality in the 21st century. Anyway, Nehemiah knows that he's going to have to give an answer. And he knows that his answer has to be acceptable. If the king doesn't like the answer, Nehemiah's had it. And we may say, well... This is a very strange way for God to answer a prayer. To put his devoted servant into a place of potential danger. And in this place of danger, to be real. I mean, Nehemiah could have pretended something else but God doesn't want pretense even if it seems tactically useful at a given time he expects honesty reality consistently For sometimes God's providence, while it seems to shut a door, actually opens one. I'm sure we're all aware of David Livingstone's amazing career in Africa. But before he went there, David Livingstone had no intention of going there. He thought God was calling him to China. And he even went to the mission committee that was going to hopefully open doors for him to go there. And when he went to see them, they didn't think he should go to China. The ones who had the power to open the door 
slammed it shut. But then they indicated he could go to Africa. So what? Shut the door. Opened the door. And what seems to shut the door here with um, Nehemiah actually opened it. What the king forbid throughout the entire of his career being sad in his presence became the door not to shut Nehemiah's mission but to open it for him. I mean truly God's ways are not our ways or his thoughts our thoughts. God knew well that the effect of um, proceeding explaining his call would cause great fear to Nehemiah. I mean, God knew that. And he didn't stop it. <clears throat> Sometimes God doesn't stop the fear. We know that, don't we? Because sometimes fear is appropriate. I mean, the best proof we have of that, of course, is Jesus. On how many occasions in Jesus' life could he be described as afraid? He wasn't afraid of the Pharisees. He wasn't afraid of the crowd. He wasn't afraid of Judas. But he was afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane. And why was he afraid? He was afraid because that's what he should have been. Afraid. In the Garden of Gethsemane. If he hadn't been afraid, what kind of man would he have been? About to face the wrath of God. There are times when fear is very appropriate. In fact, for its absence, is a sign of unreality. Fear can be present when faith is active. In fact, sometimes we just play mind games in situations where we shouldn't. Just admit that we are afraid. Perhaps some of us have got a burden to do something. God has placed on us your shoulder. burns away at you. And yet as you think about it, it frightens you. Now we voice tells you you shouldn't be afraid. 
Where does that wee voice come from? Often, it's not from God. There are situations where he tells us to fear not. But that's usually when our fears are irrational. But there are situations when fear is entirely appropriate. And what should we do then? should thank God for showing us our weakness. Shouldn't we? And as Paul tells us, after God had given him his thorn in the flesh, he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. The opposite is true, of course. If we're strong in ourselves, then we are weak. So fear can be a good sign. Nehemiah, who's going to do something incredible for God, begins it all with prayer, and then next step, Fear. And if we want to do anything for God in our 21st century mess, it's those who are afraid that God will use. As I say, Nehemiah didn't know how God would answer his prayer. It's three months of intense prayer time. He had no idea how God would answer. But here he is, and whether he realized it or not, his fear was a good sign. That leads us to think about second point, his arrow prayer. When the king had said nothing for those three months, perhaps he was away somewhere, because he's not mentioned in the first chapter. But anyway, the king was absent and things were um, kind of steady. And Nehemiah had a prolonged period of prayer. Now the crunch has come, and prolonged prayer is no longer possible. The thought did occur to me that we kind of swap things round. That we have um, <clears throat> little prayers when we should have prolonged prayer. And then all of a sudden have prolonged prayer when we should have when we should have little prayers. If we decide to have prolonged intense prayer when the crisis reaches the top or gets worse. 
And while things are going smoothly, little prayer. But as we can see from this story, the, <clears throat> the time for prolonged prayer was past. It had to be a narrow prayer. We can see from verse 4 that um, the Nehemiah um, is asked this question. The king said to me, what are you requesting? If I had been there, I would have said, God has opened the door. I'll just say something. It's not what Nehemiah did, was it? Before he said anything to the king, he prayed to the God of heaven. The king had opened the door. He said to him, what are you requesting? Before he answered, he prayed. Short prayer, of course. An arrow prayer doesn't need much time. Lord, help me. That almost fits into what we're told, that before they call, I will answer. Here we have an example of what James says that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's a problem here, of course. A problem in answering Nehemiah's prayer. And the answer is the problem is the king. The Persian Empire <clears throat> had laws that could not be reversed. That was part of their sense of stability. In the book of Ezra, this king, Artaxerxes, he had told them to stop building. In Ezra's time, these Opponents that reappear in Nehemiah's time, they had appealed to the emperor and said the Jews were engaging in rebellion and rebuilding their city and that he should stop it. And he did. So here's Nehemiah and he's praying to, he's, sorry, he's speaking to the king who is actually the main cause of the problem. Do you think it's surprising that he prayed his arrow prayer? I mean, it looks, doesn't it, as God has put him in a catch-22 situation. The king has to go to confess his wrong decision which the Persian emperors didn't do. So who's going to win this battle? Well the answer as far as Nehemiah is concerned 
is just to pray appropriately. Lord, maybe just said something, Lord, give me words. Lord, guide me as I open my mouth. Of course, the reality is that arrow prayers should be much more common. There's nothing too difficult that can't have an arrow prayer. And there's nothing too easy that can't have it either. How many things do we pray about today? a challenging question for me. I suspect it's a challenging question for all of us. Is there anything that happened to us today that we shouldn't have prayed about? Is there anything that happened today that we didn't pray about? Arrow prayers. They got lots of benefits as well as often being very successful. George Muller tells us that, doesn't he? Although at times he had to engage in more than arrow prayers. An arrow prayer is just like a, an arrow fired up into the sky. Can be done anytime, any place on any topic. And that's extraordinary. And it's got lots of benefits. Sometimes longish prayers. Well we can we can say I've been praying for that for ages. With the emphasis being on that we've been doing it. It's hard to have that kind of response to an arrow prayer. And indeed, the number of arrow prayers should be so many that we shouldn't be able to recall them. Imagine if before everything we'd done today, we had prayed. How would we start recalling them? Arrow prayers are a very effective way of dealing with some kind of attempts to magnify ourselves. It's hard to put on some kind of display or self-promotion with an arrow prayer that just arises out of a situation and goes straight up to heaven. And nobody else knows about it. Of course, it's an expression of our own inability. A failure to pray about something is an indication that we think we can do that something without prayer. Which, of course, is a very wrong attitude. An arrow prayer 
we can say, doesn't have the ability to assess what God can do about it, but it can be very expectant. Because we're basically saying to God, something like, you've got two seconds to help me. Is that not the case with all things we do? We're saying to God with arrow prayers, I need the answer within five seconds. That's all Nehemiah had. King had told him to speak. So he better start speaking. And of course the reality that all of us can offer up arrow prayers underlines God's goodness, doesn't it? Imagine if every Christian in the world today at four minutes past twelve sent up an arrow prayer to God. How many of them are there? How many does he hear? All of them. How many does he answer immediately? All of them. It shows us how good he is. So arrow prayers. They should be normality, shouldn't they? And then there's hindrances. King gives Nehemiah's letter and off he goes to Jerusalem. He gets past all the provinces beyond the river, that's the Euphrates, and then he arrives in Jerusalem. And right away, opposition. He's got God's approval, he's got the king's approval, but that doesn't get rid of the opponents. The devil hates progress. One step in the right direction is one step too far, as far as he's concerned. So he's going to hinder Nehemiah. What's the benefit of a city wall? Well, as far as the bricks are concerned, probably not too much. It's what is going to happen in the city afterwards. So the devil hates any progress. And Nehemiah has to deal with that. And you know, he doesn't make any big fuss about it initially. He doesn't respond to the people who are objecting initially. Instead, he focuses on himself, which is actually quite... An appropriate thing to do when you're the man who's got to do it. What kind of state has he got to be in to um, be ready to um, proceed? And we're told the answer to that in verse 12, which is a very striking verse. I told no one what God had put into my heart 
to do for Jerusalem. Isn't that a striking verse? I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Didn't tell his supporters. He didn't tell his opponents. He just ensured that his heart was right. Didn't make a noise about it. He knew it was important to discover what the state of the city, but instead of organizing a daylight assessment, he did it in the middle of the night, where no one could see what he was doing, apart from the one or two who were with him. The opposition didn't faze him, really. They just wanted to make sure that he was right and that he had the right information before he said something. And after that, he did explain it. Just passed on to the Israelites how God had led him to do something and how they were to be involved in it. Hindrances didn't deflect him. Didn't move him one inch. And that's why he became the man he was. How do we react to hindrances? Are we afraid of men? Nehemiah wasn't. few points in application before we finish. The obvious one is God's in control, isn't he? Things may look totally chaotic. They may even look dangerous. God's in control. Second one is we're to be careful. Nehemiah was careful to give God all the glory. And of course, in that, he's a very wise man. Because God never shares his glory. Not even with Nehemiah. God must have the glory, or he'll not get involved. Prayer is not enough by itself. Nehemiah tells us prayer and planning go together. Prayer without planning, no plan. Planning without prayer, no power. Somebody once said to Nehemiah, he walked with God. Because he talked with God. 
elementary, isn't it? He walked with God because he talked with God. An obvious lesson is that difficulties are opportunities for arrow prayers. Always. They keep us close to God. Even if the difficulties go on. Arrow prayers. How often in the Psalms the authors ask God for help. And they don't get embarrassed by having to do it for innumerable times. Lord, help me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The book of Nehemiah is almost an exposition of that verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Persian Empire can't. The opponents in in Palestine can't. Even the ones among the Jews who didn't didn't like Nehemiah couldn't. If God is for us, who or what? can be against us. Began, chapter began with Nehemiah, sad of heart. It ends with him engaged in starting rebuilding the city. Question comes to me, and it comes to you. What are we going to do? How's our our heart regarding the state of things with God's kingdom? Shall we pray?